This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today grew up in Scotland and became a reporter for a local newspaper, where she worked her way up the ranks through evening and national newspapers. She was appointed as the first ever female political editor of a News UK title in 2010, where at the Sunday Times, she became known for exposing some of the biggest political stories of the past decade, from Chris Hewn's speeding scandal to this year's story on the lockdown files, and many more in between. She has authored several books, often collaborating with Michael Ashcroft, and now broadcast for Talk TV. My guest today is Isabel Oakshop. Thank you. I'm, I'm honoured to be a woman with balls. <laughs> um, now we're in the Spectator office and on this podcast we always kick start with the same question. I mentioned the introduction you went to school in Scotland, though um, obviously don't have the accent like me who also grew up in Scotland. Um, was yours a happy childhood? It was definitely a happy childhood. It was a pretty unusual childhood actually. I grew up uh, semi in the middle of nowhere in a, a pretty freezing farmhouse with no central heating, little hot water, not much by way of carpets and decoration. So creature comforts weren't really a thing in our household. We also didn't have a television. Uh, this was a point of principle for my parents who felt that we should be doing more productive things than watching TV. Um, and that actually was quite problematic um, at the beginning of my career when I was working on tabloid papers. And I just had a complete kind of cultural gap of any kind of popular culture of the 80s and 90s. It was just not there. I didn't know anything about it. And um, what did your parents work as then? My dad was a fisheries economist and slightly strangely, one of his first assistants was Alex Salmon. And they both worked in the Department of Agriculture and Fisheries in Edinburgh. And my mum was a teacher of English as foreign language. And how did you find attending school in Scotland? So my school days were kind of dominated by the hideousness of the commute that I had to do, which looking back on it was frankly absolutely ridiculous. Uh, it was an incredibly complicated commute, which would take anything between two and three hours in the morning, generally two hours involving multiple trains, walking, buses, and then doing the whole thing in reverse. So from the age of 10 to 16, um, I was commuting upwards of four or five hours a day. Uh, which, looking back on it, is just completely nuts. I have no idea what mum and dad were thinking of, um, but they did have a, like a very strong philosophy that they wanted me and my sisters to be tough. Um, that was ingrained through everything we did. It was all about being tough. You couldn't complain about anything. Uh, and that kind of ludicrously draconian commute to school was all part of that, I think. That's interesting. So were they literally warning that, you know, the world out there is a tough one, so you, you have to get ready. Or how did it manifest itself? I think they just wanted us to be resilient. You know, we weren't really allowed to get ill. That wasn't a thing. And, you know, my mum would always say, oak shots don't cough. So we weren't allowed to cough. I mean, this <laughs> it was quite hardcore, I have to say. Um, you've got children now. Are they allowed to cough? I, I'm so soft now. It's unbelievable. And also, by the way, with the TV thing, I make a point of having a gigantic TV, you know, because I had no TV. So now it's got to be an enormous one. And did you have an early sense uh, of what you wanted to do when you were older, when you were at school? 
I think it's very lucky to know what you want to do. And actually, most young people don't. And I I was um, lucky enough to know from a very young age that I wanted to be a writer of some sort. And I was definitely drawn to being a journalist. I remember I must have been about 12 um, and we were all asked at school to imagine ourselves 10 years time what you would be doing. And I had a clear vision of myself, this being uh, the 80s. I wasn't really quite smart enough to project onto future fashions. So I was thinking of myself in a um, a kind of powder blue kind of power suit, which had um, shoulder pads, because that was what it was at the time, and that I would be reading the news. Um, In 10 years from then, I was absolutely not wearing the shoulder pads and the blue jacket or reading the news, but I was a journalist on a local paper. And um, just before we go to local paper, so at school you had the very long commute. Does that mean uh, you didn't have much time for play at school? Were you mischievous or were you quite studious? So I was, I remember one of my school reports described me as a cheerful non-conformist, which I think is pretty accurate, actually. I think I still am. They were a psychic. I have to say I was frequently in trouble. I did not like being in an all-girls school. The school that I was at was very, between, until I was 16, was highly academic um, and very sporty and... I was sort of fairly academic and not massively sporty. Funny enough, now I am much sportier than I ever was at that age. Um, so I, that school didn't suit me massively well, though it did bring me out with a you know pretty good set of academic results. I then went on to Gordonston, uh, which is a pretty unique environment. Um, it was co-ed boarding school. I absolutely loved it there. I was really happy. And had lots of adventures and they do all sorts of really fun stuff there. You've got a sail, you've got a mountaineer and I'm quite an outdoorsy person, so I loved it. Now talk listeners free to, I suppose, how you get to your first job in journalism in the local paper. So when I left university, I had no money at all and no plans. So whilst I'd, I'd always wanted to be a journalist, I wasn't very focused on getting there. I mean, I didn't sort of do lots of work experience at school or, or do anything to make it happen, really. And then there was a sort of shock of leaving university and, and being completely penniless to the point that I was actually living in a bedsit. Um, it was really horrible bedsit, and you had to put coins in a meter to get any electricity. And I was working at a call center um, for a car dealer, and you had to read out a script all day, every day, and it was really, really dire. And I remember thinking, I, whatever it takes, I have got to get out of this. So I very belatedly lined up a couple of weeks of work experience. And this was having graduated from Bristol with a history degree. Um, I lined up two weeks of work experience back in Scotland. One was on the Scotsman newspaper, which I was quite excited about. And the other was on my local newspaper in East Lothian, which is very much a rural weekly paper. And I sort of thought, well, you know, I might as well try that. But I was a bit snobby about it as a local paper. In the event, the local paper was such fun. I absolutely loved it. There were, I think, a team of five young reporters there, all just out of university. I think there was a couple of older people as well. And it was just brilliant fun. I got a front page story and the editor said to me, first job that comes up here, it's yours. 
And a couple of months later, lo and behold, one of the team left and the editor was as good as her word. She rang me up and said, would you like the job? And that was it. I was completely sold on it. The money was terrible. Um, I lived with mum and dad, no choice there. I still remember my paycheck. It used to come in and it almost seemed like an insult. It was like under 500 pounds a month. And, you know, this wasn't the 1960s. This was late 90s. So it was it was pretty hard to, to manage on that but I was living with mum and dad and I just I loved it so much that if ever I sort of had to miss a day of work for holiday or feeling not well or something I used to be gutted you know because I'd feel I had massive FOMO as to what was going on in the office even though this was cat stuck up a tree type stuff. And you worked for a range of publications so Daily Records, Sunday Mirror, Daily Mail, Evening Standard, Sunday Times... So, I, I mean, I always wanted to take the, what seemed like the tougher route, you know, and it might have seemed more obvious for someone with my educational background. You know, I'd been to supposedly posh schools. I got a first class degree in history. Just pointing that out because I'm always told I'm thick. Um, so I'm definitely not thick. Um, and it might have seemed more natural for me to gravitate to broadsheets. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do the kind of, you know, the rough end of it. Uh, and, and it really was tough working on broadsheets, particularly in those days. You know, this was well before any kind of niceness in newsrooms. You know, these were pretty brutal environments. And I was often out door knocking on the mean streets of Glasgow and in some of the toughest estates Um on the West Coast, and the stories were difficult. You know, you were sometimes put in harm's way, um, but it's a really good way to learn. And when it comes to those newspapers, so did you go from uh, the local paper to the Daily Record? So I went from the local paper where I only stayed 10 months, and I, I had a, I loved it there. You know, if money had been no object, I would have been happy to stay there for a long time. But, you know, the only way to make money at the lowest end of journalism is to keep moving. You've got to keep moving and keep moving up in stages. So I went from there to the Edinburgh Evening News, and that was, uh, it was part of the same group as a Scotsman, um, and it had three or four editions a day, maybe even five, actually. And that was an exhausting place to work, but again, really good training, speed writing. I mean, my output, two to 3,000 words a day, not unusual. Now, you're in Scotland reporting, and were you aware that, for example, you wanted to work in the lobby uh, in Westminster? Did you want to get to Westminster, and, and how did you make it I happen? actually fell into political journalism completely by accident and slightly strangely it was rather as a result of spectator editor Fraser Nelson that I came to take the job so Fraser and I had met at uh, covering a celebrity wedding in Scotland Madonna's Madonna, wedding yeah. he certainly wasn't a showbiz reporter and neither was I but you know at, the, at that time papers didn't have that many resources and so everybody was being piled into this job so you're just walking around where it is so trying to find I was things. I was a features I was well I wanted to be writing features on the Daily Mail at that time in Scotland um, and actually they were using me for all sorts of stuff and my first week there had not ended um, for five days so my, my morning on the on the Monday morning I arrived for my first day of work at the at the Scottish Daily Mail and I didn't actually get home from my first day till Friday as they moved me up the map of Scotland chasing some story which always seemed to require me to go a little bit further to another destination and, you know, I'd, I'd done this for a while and I, it was really gruelling and I just didn't really want to be on the road the whole time. So by by good fortune, um, a job had come up um, at the Scottish Daily Mail working at Holyrood 
And I didn't know anything at all about politics. My family isn't party, it is now, but it wasn't at that time party political at all. Um, I didn't know what the different parties stood for. That's how unpolitical we were. But I had just met Fraser at Madonna's wedding and he was passionate about politics and political reporting. So I thought, well, at least I've got one contact in this. And, you know, he seems a nice guy. I know someone now in the lobby. So, yeah, let's go for it. At least it gets me out of driving all over Scotland. And, you know, can you just go up to Stornoway? So I took the job uh, completely on a wing and a prayer. Um, And I loved it. I was working with another political reporter who also had no clue Um, and between us we kind of just figured it out and this was a very exciting time to be working at Holyrood the Scottish Parliament was quite young and it was doing really radical stuff you know they were doing um, things like overturning section 28 which was uh, banning the so-called promotion of homosexuality in schools you can imagine how uh, divisive and explosive that measure was Um, they were land reform bills which was all about whether you had a right to roam um, or buy your bothy um, banning smoking in public places banning smacking I mean really you know emotive issues uh, another one was free care for the elderly a hugely important piece of legislation that went through uh, and has never quite been replicated down here in in, in London so immensely exciting bits of legislation And on the Daily Mail in Scotland, we were really the only right of centre voices. So often being on the front page, loving it, building up contacts in Holyrood and thinking, well, you know, if you're enjoying Holyrood, then what would Westminster be like? And of course, Fraser was always banging the drum for wanting to go down to Westminster and off he went. And um, I thought, you know, this is the example that I have to follow. So you get to Westminster. Eventually, yeah, via a few circuitous routes. It's not easy to um, get into the lobby. These tickets don't come along very often. So I did a couple of other things in between, um, but eventually got me to be number five on the evening standard lobby team. And the the lobby um, is very hierarchical. It may have changed a bit. It's a while since I've been part of the lobby. But it is so hierarchical, such that there is number one, number two, number three. And I was very definitely at the bottom. Yeah, and that remains today. Okay, so, I'm sorry to um, hear that. It's no this, flattening of those hierarchies. Yeah, it's very much this. Uh, the number three. It just is it's so much interest in the language when you talk about it. I, I so just like, oh, they're to, number three. Oh, they're number four. I tried to tell myself that number five is as number five does. And I was not going to be <laughs> number five for long. So you're number five, but you... Go on to become political editor of the Sunday Times. So, you, are you, And also, once you're in the lobby, you can see all the other publications, can't you? You meet lots of people. Yeah, so I um, I did a year or so, 18 months on the Evening Standard yeah. in the lobby, having been a health correspondent that for very them early before. hours. And, yeah, there was a shift that started at 5.30. That was really brutal. Um, but it, it, it was a great job, and... I loved being in the lobby and then had an opportunity to apply for a job as deputy political editor of the Sunday Times. So I did that. Um, That was a very, very difficult job because the political editor is the one that gets given stuff. So if you're deputy political editor, you really have to scratch around um, for any pickings that you can find. But it's a good, again, it's a good discipline. You've got several days to come up with something and your week does work in an odd way because just when everyone else is winding down you're beginning to panic that you've got absolutely nothing and it's such a 
it's such a very, very um, blatant measure of whether you failed or succeeded being on a Sunday paper, because either you're on the front page, in which case you've semi-succeeded, or you're not, in which case, if you're the political editor or the deputy, you've completely failed. And do you spend your week, if you're on a Sunday, I suppose you start probably start trying to come up with a story list, and then every day you're just looking at the papers thinking, one's gone, um, if, if the dailies get to some of those stories before you go? It's a tough kind of psychological uh, sort of cycle in a way, because, you know, you start on Tuesday, you think, yay, lucky me, you know, haven't I got a nice, easy job? I don't have to do very much on Tuesday. I'm paid to go out for lunch with people. And, and Wednesday's similar, short hours. By Thursday, if you've got nothing bubbling up or you've got nothing on the back burner, you you are beginning to get a little bit uneasy. And certainly by Thursday night, if you've got nothing, then you're beginning to not sleep so well. Friday morning, that is really when the heat is on. And Fridays used to be such a hard day. And, you know, you'd be really hitting the phones in the hope of coming up with something And then if you've done well, then you're working late on Friday night writing your stories. And if you've not done well, you're working late on Friday night trying to do well. So it was was really, I'm sort of conscious I keep using the word tough and lucky me, I'm so, I'm lucky enough to have loved what I do. Um, But it's not an easy job at all. Um, Saturdays are a bit weirder because it's sort of either you've done it or you've not. So if you failed by Saturday, you kind of resigned to the fact that you've you've let everybody down. You've not brought in a great scoop um, or you're on the front page, in which case, you know, there's that. I've never lost the thrill of being on the front page. You know, after all these after all these years, seeing my name on the front of a paper, I still love it. I still collect the cuttings. Gives you a buzz. Yeah, it does. If, if it doesn't, then what are you doing in the business? Um, now, you talk about your time as deputy, Paulette, but you, of course, do get to take the top job at the Sunday Times political editor. Took a while, and I have to say it involved hiding a pregnancy. So um, I have talked about this before, but when I was in pole position to, to take the job of political editor um, after the political editor left quite unexpectedly... I had just found out that I was, I I just found out that I was pregnant um, and this would have been with my third child. And I thought, well, I just just don't think it's going to help my case. I I mean, I just knew it wouldn't help my case. So I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just leave. I I just won't tell them, you know, and hopefully um, they'll quickly appoint me as political editor and then they won't be able to do anything about it. But this being the Sunday Times, you know, nothing ever happened until it absolutely had to happen in terms of appointments. You know, they were always quite happy to leave it to last minute or leave jobs vacant. You know, and a lot of papers are like that. It's budgets and so on. So I was getting bigger and bigger and no appointment had been made. And it was really bad. I mean, I was doing two jobs. I didn't have a political editor. It was me acting political editor, also being deputy political editor and also getting increasingly rotund. Um, and I mean, it, it got to the point where I just couldn't let anyone see me sideways, really. So I was sort of backing out of rooms and, you know, shuggling around so that no one saw the profile of Oakshot, which was quite clearly pregnant. It probably goes to show just how male-dominated that newsroom was. I don't think anyone really noticed. (laughs) (laughs) And and eventually it got to six months. And, you know, you, you can't really hide a pregnancy after six months. It was getting ridiculous. I had to admit it. And they, for their part, were in a bit of a bind then because I'd been doing the job for ages. So 
I think they probably saw an industrial tribunal all over this if they didn't give me the job. Rather grudgingly, I think, I was appointed political editor and um, had to crack on. So one of your big scoops, if we're going to go free them, was the Chris Hewn, Vicky Price uh, speeding story. You know, speeding fines very in vogue at the moment. Yeah, all <laughs> politicians seem to be getting speeding fines and even um, Justin Welby as well. Yeah. What they don't do is what Chris Hewn did, which is try to pretend that their partner was at the wheel of the car and then lie about it. So that story was, was a, a very long and complicated one. Um, I felt very, very strongly that the person concerned, who was a cabinet minister at the time, I I basically knew he'd done this. I knew he'd lied. He was estranged from his wife, who he had uh, passed the penalty points to. She wanted the story out there. But the difficulty with that story was that in putting it out there, she was almost certain to be implicated herself. And do you so, think she was aware of that? A hundred percent. So, and she was more than beyond aware of that. We were all aware of that. So the handling of the story was very complex, very delicate. Did I get everything right? Certainly not. Um, I'd like to sort of say I was quite young at the time, but, you know, technically I probably wasn't. You know, I would have been in my 30s. But it was a big, big, big story to handle. I was probably... I suspect it would be fair to say I was not well advised, um, but, you know, it's my responsibility ultimately. And what happened is, you know, very well known. Both parties went to jail and I received quite a lot of blowback. So just to explain to listeners, so the story comes out and then the police come to you. Yes, I mean, it would take too long and would bore everybody to go into the detail. But essentially, both parties ended up being prosecuted and I took quite a lot of flack for that, and that's fine. It was very, very painful for me yeah. at the time because I felt that I had um, tried to be honourable in my dealings with the source. And without going into difficult, a lot of detail, it hadn't been easy dealing with the source either. One way or another, it was a, quite a painful experience. You know, I look back on it and think I might have done some things differently. But at the end of the day, what we're talking about was a lying cabinet minister and my objective was that that person should not get away with their lies. Now that story comes out and as you say it was a difficult period because you get people saying things like oh you don't protect your sources that type of thing which is difficult as a journalist when people accuse you of those things. Um, But then in terms of your time at the Sunday Times at what point did you decide you almost wanted to go freelance and, and chart your own course? It wasn't something I decided to do, um, but I'd been at the Sunday Times for eight years, which is a really long time to do the Sunday beat. And you lose all your Friday nights, all your Saturdays. You know, you can't even go to a wedding on a Saturday um, without having to take the whole week off. Um, So and I had three young children and I was commuting from the Cotswolds. So and I'm the breadwinner. So it was quite um, exhausting. And I was approached by Michael Ashcroft, Lord Ashcroft, a former treasurer of the Conservative Party and a a Tory peer, um, who asked whether I'd be interested in helping him write a biography of David Cameron. And I I knew, knew Lord Ashcroft a little bit through just from the political party conference circuit and being a Sunday journalist you're always trying to network with people and I thought well this is 
fantastic because it allows me to do all the things I love about my job without all the things I hate about it. And the things I love are um, researching, getting people to talk to me and writing and writing about things that matter. And so it was a really appealing project. And so I decided to quit my job and go and do that book. And now, Call Me Dave. Yes. That was the book. And it got lots of press when it came out. There was one particular story. Um, oh, my God. Head in <laughs> hands. I mean, it Involving seems, a pig. It seems so weird to say now. But, you know, at that time, this is 2015, I think. So social media was only really taking off at that time. Twitter was just sort of fairly in its infancy politically. And, you know, this one paragraph in the biography of David Cameron about his potential antics with a dead pig. Close relations. um, Just went absolutely nuclear. Um, And I thought it might be on the front of Private Eye or something, but I never thought that that story would go mainstream and global and dominate the entire coverage of the book and distract Um, I suppose from completely distract from what was a very serious piece of work and and the story was entirely appropriately caveated there was nothing unusual I read any number of political biographies that are full of much um wilder less substantiated claims and no one makes any fuss or challenges them or or claims they need to have been double or triple sourced you know this was not written in in any kind of inappropriate way however um fair to say quite a colorful story um i probably deserved the flack that i got over it um and you know i i look back on that period actually with a smile because it was it was hilarious um some of the memes were just, I mean, achingly funny. And it, it it went on for weeks. I think there was five weeks of controversy over Piggate and it took quite a toll on me. It was, it, it was quite tough. Um, but it was also very, very funny. I mean, I think David Cameron, very unfortunately for him, um, very shortly after the story broke, was due to meet the Danish Prime Minister, um, so cue all sorts of cartoons about Danish bacon and, and oh my god! I mean, you know, I think it was the second most tweeted thing after Zayn Malik leaving One Direction that year. <laughs> that should be on my gravestone. There you go. Well, no such thing as a painless scoop. Um, they also there's, there's no such thing as bad publicity. But from that experience, do, do you think that was? Was it good for the book? Did it increase sales? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Um, But that was never, I I assure you, that was never the intention. I mean, I had no financial stake in sales of the book whatsoever. You know, I I do write books that make an impact. It wasn't the first book I'd written, by the way. You know, I... I, No, you've done a range. I've done 10 books in 10 years um, and I've probably done more than 10 books. I just can't be bothered counting them up. But I like to say I've done 10 books in 10 years because it sounds a lot and it, it feels a lot, I can tell you. Um, and I specialise in writing books that make an impact. They they get a lot of media coverage. Um, it doesn't mean that I cynically concoct stories to that end, um, but I bring so many years of media experience to the book writing approach. Um, what's the point of writing books that sink without trace? 
And alas, we don't have time to go into every book, so we will move I'm on. I'm so glad. Thank you. <laughs> to the latest book. Yes. Um, which was Matt Hancock's Diaries. Can you... I just interrupt and say, actually, that wasn't my latest book. Oh, sorry. Um, and the, but there's no reason you should know this, but that I... Um, worked with Ben Goldsmith on his beautiful book called God is an Octopus about the loss of his daughter. And I mentioned that because it's so different to all the other books I've worked on. It is a heartbreaking memoir, um, but also quite uplifting about how he um, managed to find solace in nature after his daughter was, teenage daughter was killed in a freak accident. And the difference with that book and the others I've, I've worked on is that Ben actually wrote it. So it's had incredible reviews and I can't take any credit for that um, because he's a beautiful writer and a lovely person to work with. And the book deserves all the success that it's had. Um, but I do think it's quite funny that it got a brilliant review in The Guardian. And I'm certain that if they'd actually got to the end where there's a huge acknowledgement to me, um, the uh, the um, praise that it got from The Guardian would have been a lot more muted. So what was your role in that one, kind of going through? So the book was my Go, idea. Yeah. Um, ben had originally conceived a book about rewilding, which is his passion. Um, and it was very quickly apparent to me that, actually what he should be writing about was his daughter and what we wanted to do is find a way of combining the two which worked very naturally actually um so I was I think he would describe me as editor I certainly didn't go to write the book as I say he is a, an extremely talented writer and I wouldn't be surprised if he writes at least another another or two books more now, you helped Matt Hancock uh, put his diaries into a book form, um, so his pandemic diaries. At the time, they got some good press, got some attention. Um, but then, of course, um, there was a development sometime after where The Telegraph uh, launched the lockdown files, which Fraser, <laughs> your old... Um, journalist friend from standing outside Madonna's red wedding yes, yeah. obviously a columnist at the telegraph and ha and has also mm. you know been quite involved in mm -hmm. from a telegraph perspective they get released and mm. it is matt hancock's whatsapp messages not every single one of them uh, that, that yes. a long lengthy process to go through yes, to, to right. see what's going to be yeah. published um, but what they do is they um they ultimately highlight key decisions some of the things we might expect to see in the covid inquiry we learned through the telegraph through the messages yes um and then of course matt hancock quite quickly saw red when they first came out and yes. just caught a bit off guard what made you make the decision to to go to the telegraph or, did, or the telegraph came to you but you know to get to the point where you were releasing this so i had been given this enormous cache of whatsapp messages which for any journalist is just the most incredible thing i'm a political journalist you know to see the inside story of the pandemic by WhatsApp, um, particularly for me as a, as a lockdown sceptic, was extraordinary. Um, but it was never my intention, oh, well, after the book's finished, I'm just going to shove them all out there on the internet or something. Um, I mean, I had signed a, a confidentiality agreement, and that's not something I take lightly at all. Um, you know, if you if you go around breaching confidentiality agreements, people aren't going to exactly hire you for other projects. So, you know, there's, I knew there would be a big price to pay for me if I, if I did that. Um, and I genuinely wasn't contemplating doing that. What I did want to do after Matt's book came out was write about the wider things that I had learned by working with him. Uh, because I was a pretty prominent 
a critic and very vocal critic of the response to the pandemic all the way through uh, on various media outlets. And so I was being quite heavily criticised by, if you like, my tribe, the lockdown sceptics tribe of things for working and collaborating with somebody they saw as the arch enemy. You know, the architect of everything lockdown sceptics despise is Matt Hancock. So what was I doing working with him? So, you know, to me, the answer to that is very obvious. I'm a journalist. You know, my job isn't isn't supporting one side or the other, not finding out information from the other side. That's crazy. So, of course, as a journalist, particularly as a lockdown sceptic, I wanted to get to the heart of what had really happened. Um, but I did want to write a broader piece because the book was Matt's book and it had his name on it as well as mine and um, it was his account of the pandemic. I wanted to give my perspective. So that was something that I did for The Spectator. And and that got me thinking, well, I've still got this huge resource. What do I do with it? What is the right thing to do with that? Now, easiest option, nothing. Um, keep it on a hard drive, burn it, delete it. Um, I discussed with a friend creating a huge kind of archive book which would be kept somewhere secret and then perhaps given to the National Archives. Um, but the direction that the COVID inquiry was heading in, uh, in other words, absolutely nowhere, um, led me to feel that the only right thing to do was to put these messages in the public domain. Not all the messages, not whacking them onto the internet in a completely irresponsible fashion, but actually those that were in the overwhelming public interest should be put out there. Now, critics would say, well, that's the job of the COVID inquiry, to which I would say, and did say repeatedly at the time, the COVID inquiry hasn't even begun properly. As of June 2023, the COVID inquiry is about to take its first evidence Launched this week, sessions. Yeah. Uh, however, in December 2020. Two, when I was making this decision, that inquiry had got nowhere. You know, best part of two years going nowhere. And its terms of reference, in my opinion, are hopelessly unrealistic. You know, looking at those terms of reference as a journalist, I would say you need a year to do each issue justice. And there's about 30 issues there. So it's obviously hopeless to cover so much ground. The inquiry still has no deadline. It's one of the things I'm slightly disappointed that didn't come out of the lockdown files exposing was a clear commitment to complete the investigation and report by a certain date. Uh, although I do think we've been told that they're going to wrap up the investigation in terms of the research element by 2026. Well, you know, goodness knows when the report will come out. So I think it was absolutely the right thing to do to put those messages in a selective form in the public domain, because frankly, it's the richest source of material as to what was really going on that we're probably ever likely to see. I think the messages were fascinating. I think everyone's gripped. Um, Telegraph got huge traffic, yeah. Um, but you know, being the main source of those. Do you think you should have given Matt Hancock a bit of a heads up, having written the book with him? So there were difficult decisions to make around that. I've said many times I enjoyed working with Matt Hancock. I've, I find plenty of things about him to admire. This was never personal as far as I was concerned. Um, 
I couldn't warn him about it. I would love to have done that because I didn't know how he would react and he may well have tried to injunct me. And I think what we've seen from the Cabinet Office reaction to the prospect of more WhatsApps being put in the public domain shows you just how seriously the risk of an injunction was there. Um, and this is why the Telegraph investigation was conducted amid such secrecy, because we could not let it get out, because the government would have tried to block it. I, I think we know that now, because yeah. look at the extent to which they're prepared to go. They're actually launching a judicial review against their own judge-led inquiry. Yeah. So that was the risk. Um I don't like falling out with people, you know. I'm I've, all all journalists operating at, you know, the, in the type of domains that I do are going to make some enemies. Um, but it's not comfortable for me, um, you know, to be seen to betray somebody. I take no pleasure whatsoever in that. It's not something that I would do casually. But I, honestly, if it's the last big story I do, it's the most important one I've ever done. Because I suppose in the days and weeks that followed, it was quite interesting because obviously the Telegraph going very hard on the lessons of lockdown. I knew some messages to say it, but it felt as though other parts of the media more focused on you. Um. And I kind of knew it would be like that. And it's partly because I am a divisive figure anyway. You know, I think that stems not just from some of the other big stories. I mean, one we haven't talked about was actually one of the most serious ones was the diplomatic telegrams, yeah. um, which led to the downfall of uh, Kim Darroch, uh, then the UK's ambassador in Washington. So I have a long track record of stories that have caused chaos uh, and have upset a lot of people in high places. And I'm also or was a very prominent Brexiteer. Um, so if you're going to tick a lot of boxes of what's upset people, you know, I'm, I'm right there. Um, and, and perhaps I'm really annoying in other ways. I don't know. Anyway, um, I fully expected there to be quite a lot of hostile attention on me. But I do think it's extraordinary that any serious journalist should seriously suggest that I should have sat on 2.3 million words worth of hugely important information about the pandemic um, for the sake of protecting a former health secretary. It's not my job as a political journalist to protect politicians' dark secrets. It's actually my job to reveal things that are in the public interest. And as for these questions about trust, you know, I don't think we're in a good place if politicians trust journalists fundamentally and if journalists fundamentally trust politicians. That relationship should always be one of slight tension. We should not trust each other. It's not our job as political uh, journalists to cosy up to politicians with the hope of being uh, continued to be invited to their parties and their salons and be on their Christmas card list. It's fun to do all that. I know it's fun being part of that crowd. But ultimately, you know, we are there to hold them to account on behalf of people who can't. Do you think you're still on Matt Hancock's Christmas card list? I'm definitely not on his Christmas card list. Um, hey, the price you have to pay. When you mentioned earlier how you didn't want... Obviously, you signed an agreement with the mm. one and you take very seriously that you wouldn't want to go against that because yeah. it can obviously influence things in terms of future work. You talk to a bit about how if the lockdown files is your last big story, mm. you're proud of it. Do you think it 
is influencing in terms of future work because there was negative publicity about it or, or not really because you have done the book since I well just to be clear I didn't work on an additional project you know yeah. often you've got books running in parallel I mean I have all sorts of income streams you know I'm a political broadcaster um I write for newspapers you know writing books I've actually done I feel like I'm ready for a rest from book writing so I, I'm not remotely worried about other work. There's all sorts of ways in which I, I make money. I have to make money. You know, this is, I've got a young family. Um, but, you know, this isn't ultimately, it, it isn't about me. If I've taken a hit, then that's fine. The cause is really important. And, you know, so the reaction to it has been so phenomenal from ordinary people. I don't really honestly give a toss about carping media colleagues who are jealous or whatever it is that they are, that they feel about the way I handled the story. What I care about is ordinary people, the millions of people whose lives were terribly affected by the response to the pandemic or by COVID in some way or another. And what matters to me and what made it, you know, because it's not easy being criticised by your colleagues. I'm not going to make light of that, you know, it is actually really, really horrible. I was going to um, say, you know, the mantra of your family is be tough. Um, yeah, from an early, I mean, but, but probably seeing some of the things. It's I do certainly want to like, being horrible about. to be attacked publicly by industry colleagues. But what made up for that more than was the number of people who would literally come up to me on the street and say, thank you for this. You know, I thought at times I was going mad thinking something's not right about the response to the pandemic. And now everything that, that has come out in these lockdown files shows that, you know, everything that we suspected. You know, the reaction from normal people, if you like, non-political bubble people has been overwhelming. I had flowers sent to the office, people, barrage of emails, you know, that was really heartening. Um, so in the end, look, you know, I've I've been around the block a bit. Um, I'm quite resilient, and um, ultimately, the story speaks for itself. It has changed the course of the COVID inquiry demonstrably. So, I think that's a pretty good outcome. And um, I suppose looking at some of the things we've been talking about, do you think? sources can trust you in terms of if they come to you with their story because we talk about price and those things and, and that, a, that's if, one of the big criticisms if right? you have a really dark secret which is in the public interest then don't expect me to keep it otherwise get in touch otherwise i'm all ears <laughs> <laughs> now you've said you're a bit done with books potentially for now at least mm. um so so uh you know. i mean i don't want a headline i'm done with books i'm a writer yeah, i'm my always going to write yeah. i don't need someone to pay me to write books i can write books that make a big impact all day long yeah. um but i could do with a break yeah just now i was, I was just gonna ask well, what is there any particular project you'd like to do next or kind of looking ahead to do oh well um I mean, I always want to get alongside the big stories and you can't plan scoops. It just doesn't work like that. You know, none of the none of the big stories that I've done, I've thought, right, I'm now going to plot to bring down somebody or, you know, that's just not how it works. Um, and nor can you ever be sure that another one is going to somehow come along. So what I do best is, 
get out there and meet people and get them opening up to me and maybe another great scoop or investigation will come along and maybe it won't um, and if it doesn't I've got plenty else to do. Um, now we've done enough with the negative I think but I just wondered did anyone surprise you getting in touch after lockdown if I was in a positive way? We- 100% yeah. thank you Rachel Johnson. Um, I, I mean I was stunned on day I think it was day one of the lockdown files expose to get a message from Rachel Johnson sister of the key figure in all of this one Boris Johnson and Rachel won't mind me saying this because she subsequently went public but her message just made my eyes stand out on stalks you know essentially she was saying and I'm paraphrasing here my god I agree with everything that you've done and you know kind of thank you for doing this and the lockdown was a disaster and you know she talked um in her message quite movingly about how her mother who now passed away had suffered uh, in a care home So I was astonished by this message and thought, oh, Rachel, if only you'd spoken out during the time, you know, maybe that would have changed the course of history. But understandably, of course, she felt she had to keep her counsel. Um, But anyway, she very bravely wrote about what she thought for the Telegraph, I think, the following day. So thank you, Rachel, for that. It was a really big moment for me. And and I should also say that a number of uh, government ministers contacted me privately and were pretty pleased with the expose, Um, perhaps less enthusiastic about speaking out. Though we did have Gavin Williamson saying that perhaps he should have fought harder to keep schools open. He did do an op-ed. Now, the final question on this podcast is one we ask everyone who comes on. It's what is the worst advice you've been given? Now, that could be at any point in your career. Perhaps we will text as your advice when the lockdown files came out. Or perhaps it was earlier. It might actually be something that you touched on earlier, which is there's no such thing as bad publicity. Because from where I'm sitting, um, there's been plenty of bad publicity. And, you know, I hardly ever cry. You know, I just, I can probably count on the fingers of one hand how often I've cried in the last decade and a half. Um, But sometimes the sheer weight of hate that comes your way as as a... a, um, professional feather ruffler as I am and somebody who goes out there to break big stories can be quite overwhelming it can knock your breath out um this is something that I talk to Julia Hartley Brewer about a lot as another journalist with very much the same generation and you know she's incredibly tough but now and again you know we have our moments there's only so much you can take and so there is such a thing as bad publicity but also if you just keep going, you style it out, it will turn around. And I'm going to be cheeking just one quick one, which is when it does get quite bad, what do you do? Do you get on the phone to Julia, Chardonnay? Or like, are we talking like room alone, <laughs> I, I scent a candle? I never resort to alcohol, never, never do that. Um, but others who, have, who are in the arena um, are the best source of solace, you know, um, and the whole thing about, you know, just don't look at it on Twitter. It's impossible not to look at it. I don't know what it is that compels one not to. But if you can just step away from Twitter for a bit, that is the healthy thing to do. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you for having me on. Thank you.